Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside Asperger's Studios. Were you diagnosed late in life with ASD or ADHD? Well, my next guest, Amy O'Keefe, who is an archaeologist PhD student, was just that. He was diagnosed this February with ADHD and ASD, and we talk about how it's affected her studies, how she's living with it, and what she's doing about it, and much, much more. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll see you on the other side. See you there. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today, I'm joined with Amy O'Keefe. Welcome to the show, Amy. Hi, thank you for having me. Not a problem. Absolutely delighted. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So I am an Irish archaeologist. Um, I've done my undergrad, I've done my master's, and I'm working on my PhD. And only earlier this year, I was diagnosed with ASD or uh, autism spectrum disorder and ADHD. And I had suspected it most of my life, at least for the autism part, um, but it just wasn't picked up on in school. So I suppose like academia was definitely, it's a unique challenge being undiagnosed, but still knowing something wasn't quite right. Um, but yes, uh, my research areas, I suppose, are specifically ancient Greece and prehistoric time periods. Uh, and I like to like examine the material culture, specifically like bones, human remains, that kind of thing. But it's always like I tend to gravitate towards very gendered topics. Um, in my master's, I did um, kind of matricentric or motherhood and the representations of that and how we write about it, because, you know, archaeology is a bit of a, a problematic subject um, in its inception because it was more of a gentlemanly uh, hobby rather than anything else. So there's a lot of biases, sexism, racism, you know, the, the full battering ram, all of it. Uh, so it's it's kind of important to delve back into that and kind of chip away at it. And yeah, I think I I have that unique perspective, I suppose, to do so, hopefully. So you were diagnosed this year? Yes, I was diagnosed this year, February, in fact. Um, but again, like I kind of kind of suspected for quite a while. All right. Um, did your diagnosis change the way you how things were? or how you were thinking, or did life just go on? I think it was a good change. I think it was a very positive step because when you don't have that diagnosis, I suppose there's always that that margin of doubt. Like there's room for, for doubt and saying, oh, well, maybe, maybe I'm not, and maybe I'm imagining it, or maybe I'm lazy when it comes to like not being able to focus. It's like, oh, I'm lazy, or I'm not as intelligent as I think I am. And it's just... I think it all kind of boils down to something that my teachers in primary school, so when I would have been like ages like five up until 11, some of my teachers would say to my parents, Amy's Amy's very sensitive. She's too sensitive. Mm. And there was, there was never anything kind of flagged with that. And looking back on it now, it looks as, as clear as the nose on my face now mm. that I know that. But I, I think... The diagnosis is, to me, information. And with information, I can apply it and work around it and find ways to be kind to myself and also ways to to use what gifts I do have and not punish myself for the gifts I don't necessarily have. So I think I think it was a good, positive, um, I suppose, empowering moment for me, yeah. Now, would you say that archaeology would be your hyper-focus? <laughs> your special interest, the one thing that you focus in on so much that applies. Uh, well, me possibly. I suppose I I'd, that that's where things get a little bit complicated because that's when the ADHD kind of comes in. I have that very uh very fun and useful ADHD that's inattentive and hyperactive. So mm -hmm. just just a great time. <laughs> just a great time. So I suppose I would like. I, I want to be interested and engaged in everything all at once, immediately, right now, but also 
I'm not satisfied unless I start something and finish it and it's complete. And that that's the, I feel like that's more of the autism side for me. So I would say like from a very young age, there was something about archaeology that really kind of called out to me. Stargate, I think, has a lot to answer for with Dr. Daniel Jackson. I thought mm-hmm. that was amazing, like the Egyptology and the, sh- the shiny things. I don't know, maybe I'm a bit of a magpie, but I find very much so like the process of researching something and delving into it in such, in such depth. Yeah, that sounds like hyper-focusing to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's funny that you mentioned Stargate instead of Indiana Jones. Now, of course, I mentioned that. Yeah. Would you almost say that Indiana Jones almost glorifies what archaeology is all about? No, I wouldn't, because he's not doing archaeology really. It's tomb raiding <laughs> and punching Nazis, one of which is really, really great. <laughs> it's not. It's not the tomb raiding. <laughs> tomb raiding's not good. <laughs> yeah, the punching the Nazis. Is, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I I personally think that when his movies came out. He kind of glorified it to the point. Okay. That's why people got drawn to it because, oh, this mm. is what archaeology is all about. It's going to yeah. find things. But I have an old, we have a family friend whose daughter is an archaeologist who's right. a curator at our museums. And she's like, it's nothing like that. You're spending it's more time at the dig site with a little, with little tools and Very much. towels and trying to find tiny little bones and this and that and oh yeah score. oh yeah absolutely um you know indiana jones is is a great adventure but at the end of the day it very much is uh you know just a bit of colonialism he just goes around saying it belongs in a museum where did you take it from indy did you take <laughs> it from the temple that belonged to people you know that's theft but yeah archaeology very much is it is a science or some people call it a soft science in quotations, I suppose. But it's that it's a weird in a weird liminal space. It's a humanity, an art, science, you know, it's it, there's a process to it. So when you're on the field, it's a lot of documenting. You have to like write out measurements. You have to draw plans and maps and record what you find, give everything a context number, take photographs. And in Ireland, you have to be covered up to your armpits in muck in the middle of winter, which is oh. very fun, very cold. <laughs> uh, but it's it's very it's a very physical manual labor job when you're on the field. Um, you know, when you can't dig things with machinery, you have to do it by hand with mm-hmm. tools. And if if you're in a nice place like Greece or Italy, where, where I have worked as well, um, it's it, it has its own problems as well with the heat and everything. But you can, you can take your time. You do get your little brushes out and brush away. But for the most part, you're just covered head to toe in muck and you're wearing Wellington boots and you've right. got a bit of a pickaxe in your hand. And they say, we need to drain out that ditch over there and the pump isn't working. So everybody line up with buckets and we'll start to drain it by hand. <laughs> Very glamorous. Yeah. Um, I kind of reminds me of talking about Greece. I was in Greece and I was talking. My tour guide's husband was a civil engineer, and they were working. And she was telling me it's a whole lot different when you're an archaeologist and a civil engineer and everything in Greece because of all their antiquities. The minute you hit an antiquity, everything stops. Archaeologists can't do what they. Archaeologists have to come in and they have to literally label every little tiny thing and it holds up all construction work, modern construction work for like Mm -hmm. subway lines because you're hitting ancient antiquities, things that are back during the ancient times and you can't touch this. It Mm. becomes labeled as historic. Yes, that is that is something I think there's definitely a middle ground to that because I've worked in what we call commercial archaeology in Ireland, but it was more research archaeology when I was in Greece. But there is that kind of feeling of resentment, I suppose, towards archaeologists, because if you find archaeology on private property or like near somebody's land, 
it's almost as if that land is seized then. So they don't want you to find things. And mm. I, I absolutely understand that. I really do, you know, because you don't want your property taken away from you. Life is hard enough. And these digs and surveys and everything, they can take quite a while. So I'm not as up maybe on the, the laws and the processes in Greece, maybe. But I do know that in Ireland, uh, when we need to build roads and everything, if there's any suspicion at all that there's archaeology there, that's when they kind of call in a consultancy uh, company and we go in, we record as much as we can. And that's when you get, you know, supervisors and directors breathing down your neck, being like, this should have been finished yesterday. And it's like, when was the last time you dug a hole, John? Do you understand (laughs) how hard it is? Um, But it's, it's quite a culture, yeah. It has has a lot of issues with sexism and ableism as well in within fieldwork. I know specifically in Ireland, but I've heard of other stories as well abroad. But it it's it's its own microcosm of issues, I suppose, too. But very meticulous work, yes. And then you'll always have one person who just doesn't know what they're doing, won't admit that they don't know what they're doing, and they mess the whole thing up. It just takes takes longer then. Now, with your studies and everything else, how do you deal with your ADHD, ADHD and your ASD? I mean, I, everyone knows when you have ADHD, it really, your focus kind of weighs in and out unless it's something you're you're focused on and it's mm-hmm. your passion. Yeah. Uh, the way that I've really managed it up until this point in my life was through the sheer anxiety of not completing my tasks. <laughs> I got to get a deadline. I'm just like, I don't want to get in trouble because if somebody gives out to me or frowns at me funny, I'll burst into tears. So I simply must force myself to do the work. And it was so frustrating because I know that I enjoy these topics and, and and the process so much. But if I have to sit down and force myself to engage in this, it almost feels like my brain is trying to escape out the back of my head. I just do not want to do the work. Uh, so that's that has been a very difficult thing, I suppose, for much of my life. And that's what's led me to getting that formal diagnosis, because it was something that had to be kind of put on the back burner quite a bit because it, it's very expensive over here mm-hmm. to see a psychiatrist. So um, and then I was diagnosed in February. I only started um, medication, I think, last month or so. And it has been very, very helpful to just have that little, little bit of something chemical to just kind of be like, just get things, get the ball rolling. And of course, like medication isn't the answer for everything. I know that. And I managed very well without it. But the difference to me is night and day because it would feel, it felt like I would have to work nearly a hundred times harder than my peers to nearly get close to the results they were getting. Like sometimes I would underperform and I'm like, this isn't right. But now I can just like sit down, I'll have my thoughts, I'll make these connections, I'll put myself out there, I'll do my research and be like, oh yes, and develop ideas and connect this to this thing. And especially with the PhD, you have to try and engage and make a name for yourself, apply for conferences and stuff. And that that's how I ended up here, I suppose, was that uh, I, I had this great idea because conferences are so expensive to attend. I was like, what's, what's the millennial solution? to not having to pay $450 to speak at a convention. It's like podcasts, excellent idea. So it's just you know, just letting your brain do brain things and not having a thousand thoughts at once trying to cram through the door at the same time. It's like they make an orderly little cue and I can do the things I need to do, the things I want to do. And it's just, it's revelation. It's been a revelation for me this last month. Or so yeah, it's amazing. Now, does Ireland have any kind of resources that can help you with your ADHD and ASD? That's, uh, it's not something that's really been kind of put forward to me. I suppose like there was discussions of occupational therapy. I had one appointment with her and she said, have you tried keeping a journal? And I was like, I I can't, I can't, I can't stress to you how much I need to outsmart myself. I'm too smart, too clever. And too lazy, too too focused on not doing the task to write it down and say, oh, well, now I'll do it now. So I think 
And I don't know how it is in other countries, but anytime you try to look up any kind of support groups or how you, if you have questions about ASD or ADHD, it refers back to your child or information for parents. And mm-hmm. it's almost like there's this thought that ADHD and ASD just just disappear when you grow up or that I don't know like do we all cease to exist there's no I I mean I'm sure there are groups out there and I know there's I think there's some kind of discussion group and support group in the college I attend Trinity College Dublin for people with ASD but I haven't had a chance to go and have a look yet but um, no, there, there's not really a broader discussion. And at least there certainly wasn't when I was going through the school system. It might be quite different now, but oh, it was, as we would say here, gorgeous, terrible. <laughs> Did you, when you, when you attended Trinity, you mm-hmm. knew you had your ASD and ADHD. Did, did you find ways to help conquer your ADHD to help you with your studies, like little tricks or run turnarounds or whatever. Um. See, I it was. I think the ADHD was something I was in denial about or didn't believe for a very long time, because a lot of my other friends had ADHD or ADD without the the hyperactive part. And I was like, oh, well, (laughs) the struggles they have don't seem to be the struggles I have. I just, I'm just very diligent. I just try to sit down and get my work done, but I wasn't acknowledging that I was having difficulty with certain aspects of studying, like my focus drifting and like not being able to start the task, saying to myself, okay, at this time I'll get up. Oh, I've missed that window of opportunity. Guess it's uh, the, the next hour I'll get up and do the thing. But I suppose, again, like the unhealthy way that I coped with it, again, was that anxiety of I need to perform this task. And that's where I suppose that thing of potential and performance kind of really slipped there. Um, So I think with a bit of time and understanding of myself, my performance did get quite a lot better because I knew this might take me a bit longer to complete this task. So if I had a deadline, I would start it quite a bit, like the task quite a bit earlier than my peers, perhaps, um, because I knew myself well enough at this point to know I'm going to need all this time. Because I took I took four years away from college after I finished my undergraduate because I, I was exhausted. I couldn't handle it. I thought I'm not I'm not the type of person they're looking for in academia. I don't know who that is, but it's mm-hmm. not me. And I also at the time was undiagnosed with fibromyalgia, mm. um, which is a whole other kettle of fish. But there is a bit of a kind of a crossover and overlap there between the not being able to focus thing with ADHD and fibromyalgia. So I was like, I don't know which is what. But um, I think with a bit of age and a bit of time, like stepping away, getting that perspective and learning to just kind of allow myself the space to have my struggles, to not be able to do things and accept my limitations. It, it let me find ways to get around it and do it in a different way and, you know, be, be a bit more calm about it. And I suppose that's maturity more than anything. But yeah, it's it's been quite a, quite a steep learning curve, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, now, so your ADHD and ASD have affected your studies and you found workarounds. That's a good thing. I mean, yeah. a lot of students who don't have their diagnosis and don't know what's going on struggle. Yeah. I mean, oh, good. going into Trinity, did you look for like a disability apartment to say, hey, I am diagnosed with ASD and ADHD. Are there any things you can do for me? On time tests and so on and so forth. Um, again, I suppose I didn't have that formal diagnosis until this year when I started the PhD and there's not really examinations or tests or anything uh, or formal assignments, so to speak. So, um, I don't at the moment see any benefit to me to going and saying, Hey, what can I get? Like, what help can I get from you? But, it might be something I'll look into down the road. Like mm-hmm. it could be something I couldn't even think of or conceptualize. They'll, they'll say, here's a, a solution for a thing and it'll be world changing quite possibly. But 
again, it was that that thing of not having that diagnosis and still knowing it in myself, but I did not have the financial means, I suppose, uh, to acquire that diagnosis. It cost me 650 euro to get a diagnosis. Yes. Yikes. And that's that's probably not with insurance either. Well, I did have to go privately. So I, I have health insurance. It's a, it's a bit more of a, regular thing i suppose here and because i have so many different health conditions i suppose and problems it was a good idea to have it so i got some of that money back but it was over it was over a limit like that that chunk of money was so far above a limit that they only paid me a lesser portion than what i would have thought to get it back but if i'd gone on like a public waiting list i'd probably still be waiting it could be like about two years or so before you get an appointment it's nuts now, how do you think? Do you, do you think in pictures? Do you think in patterns or abstractions? This that is an interesting question. Um, I always say that I'm a very visual thinker. So if someone says a sentence to me, I do have the little the little pictures just appear in my head. So like if someone said a gorilla playing the saxophone while skateboarding on a crocodile, I can see that as clear as day. <laughs> it's it's not like I just like, and so when people say like the the most ridiculous kind of like euphemisms and things like that, I pictured, I'm just like, oh, <laughs> so, like I, I am very visual that way. But uh, again, I suppose relating it back to my research and my work, that has actually been of benefit to me. Because when you read about something, I can sort of conceptualize it as a 3D thing and think about how I would interact with that in person then. And if I'm if I'm lucky enough, fingers crossed, I'll be able to go over um, to Greece possibly next year and have a look at some artifacts and things. But it's that that visual aspect is quite important, I suppose. Um, as as for patterns, I you see the thing is like so I probably do conceptualize and think of patterns and try to trace them but it almost feels like a background program <laughs> like I'll, I'll just be sitting there eating my dinner and I'll just be like <gasps> I'll have like this as I call them big dumb brain waves and I'll make some nutty connection and it'll just be this it'll seem like this most brilliant thing to me and I don't know where I got the the thought from but I'm just putting all this information in here and something must be running in the background or something will tick over and make me think back to it. And it'll just kind of like all click together nicely. And it's, again, it's nice to have the the clear headedness to be able to make those connections yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I suppose like that, that pattern patterns and, and visualization, I suppose thinking quite literally as well, when it comes to imagining things in my head might be the ESD part. And I, I think that's, I think that's, um, pretty cool ability i wouldn't call it like a superpower or anything daft no. but not everybody can do that and i think that's really cool and it's definitely definitely been a big help for me anyways now you'd mentioned procrastination with your studies and things and getting through. how do you handle that i mean that's adhd in a nutshell is procrastination we oh yeah something we know we got to do it and if it, oh, I'll get it later. And then later becomes mm-hmm. more later and later becomes more later. And then it's like, oh, crap, it's due tomorrow. How do you handle that without yeah. going into panic mode? I think the way that I have been managing it and like this has been a, over a process, a process developing over years is that I know that if I leave things on the long finger, if I don't address them, I'll just be very stressed and that'll taint my enjoyment of the relaxing things. Like if I want to play a video game or read a book, I'll still have that thought in the back of my head, like that due date is coming up. You should have, you should have been doing a bit of this, like that little bit of guilt. And that's not, that's not a nice feeling. I don't like feeling that way. So I say to myself, like you can do, if you do just a little bit, then you can read your book or I'll know that I'll derive more enjoyment from it. And it's, I know it's all about chasing that dopamine as some people say, but it's like, I know I'll get more enjoyment from it if I'm not stressed about this thing. So I think I've just taken that whole thing of knowing that I have to attack things or begin things sooner than other people has kind of carried over now. And 
I'm really conceptualizing things in a very, very long, very long run and planning them out as best as I can now that I'm actually able to think. Again, the medication has been great. I'm very pleased. Uh, so I'll know, okay, so this thing is due in a few months. I'm already thinking about it. I already have like, you need to start this by now or taking notes and saying, oh, we can mention this here or doing a bit of extra reading. And that it's not even that it just eliminates that bad, guilty, stressful feeling. It actually makes me feel even happier. So I'm like, look how look how well I'm doing. Look how far ahead I am. I suppose it's it's trying to balance that horrendous anxiety of the stress of having something due tomorrow and not having started is balancing that with gratification and enjoyment. And like it, it sometimes it gets away from me where it's the end of the day and I'm like, oh, crap, I forgot time existed. And I just spent all day, uh, I don't know, like playing Destiny 2. <laughs> you know, like hours sometimes just slip away. So that is something I do kind of need to keep on top of. So like, I'm sure for some people writing things down in a journal helps. doesn't always help for me. No. Uh, but I suppose like, again, it's the visual thinker in me. I, I conceptualize it and visualize it in my head and slot things in that way and just try my best, I suppose. Um, that sounds like me when I start root, when I'm medicine. I did it. I've been off of my ADHD medicine for years until I went on a trial um, medicine, a um, clinical trial medicine for ADHD for communication. Okay. Happened for the trial right during right in the middle of COVID, they said, "Oh, we're not getting the results we want. We're canceling the trial." Mm. But I made a really good friend with the therapist that was running the thing, and he, I became his client. And I said, "I need something to help with focus." So he says, "Okay, I'm putting you on Adderall." Okay. I couldn't take the five the five milligrams. It was just too much for my heart. It felt like I was mm. running a race. Yeah. And I couldn't even take a half because I, I still had that aggression going in. So he says, okay, I'm going to put you on the smallest amount possible. And that works. But when I That's take great. it, my focus is on point. I'm focused. And, I, and when I know I have something, and I know, and I want to play something or do something. I say, you're going to do your work first and then you'll play as mm -hmm. a reward. Yes. And it works for me because then that keeps me on point and on track of getting something, get everything done. Yeah. I, that is, that is something that very much resonates. Um, that, that like these medications, they are great to help you think, but they can have quite a toll on the body oh, yeah. because I started, I started out with Concerta and I was like, okay, Anna, this is fine, but it wasn't fine. My heart, my heart was racing and I'm on some different medications for other things as well. Mm -hmm. So eventually I was just, I went to the nurse and I was like, well, check my blood pressure and everything. And she took my heart rate and she was like, oh, that's too high. So I came straight off it and we started then on Ritalin instead. And it's been, it's definitely been a lot more gentle and I don't feel that same almost a, a manic, for lack of a better word, that in, intense focus, that intense energy of, I have to do all of these things right now. And it, it was almost overwhelming, but I feel like Ritalin for me at the moment anyways, is just, oh, I have this thing I need to do. Okay, but I better go sit down and I'll start it and I'll, I'll enjoy it. And I'm still able to eat food and my heart is, is healthy and happy, nice and low. I can exercise and not worry about it. But mm -hmm. I think that's definitely a challenge that it, it almost seems unfair, really, you know, that we've had this hand dealt to us that yeah. we have to choose. Sometimes we have to choose, like, do you want to enjoy eating your Christmas dinner or do you want to be present and hold a conversation? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it does sometimes feel unfair and trying to find that balance can be quite challenging as well. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I mean, when it's like, do you want to be like you said, do you want to be with it or do you want to be like a walking zombie the rest of your life? Not being yeah. able to focus on anything. Yeah. I mean, for a good, for the early part of my life, you never knew what I had. Mm. And it was, oh, he has issue. He's learning his disability. Let's put him on Silert, which is a stimulant. 
that worked great. Okay. And then they were like, it's got problems with the heart or the liver. Let's take it off of them, put them on something that's non-stimulant. So they put mm. me on Stratera. I felt like a freaking zombie. No. I yeah. was so out of it. I was so I was just so out of it. I tried and I tried and I tried and I just felt horrible. Yeah. And I took myself off of it. And I told my doctors and they're like, okay. And I've been off of it until recently and then I went on Adderall and it's just like a, a switch. Yeah. You feel focused, you're able to enjoy. But then, like you say, you also have the downside of that medicine, which are the side effects. Yeah. Then there's... You... Sorry, ahead. please. No, go you go ahead. ahead. <laughs> you deal with those side effects. I mean, I know Adderall gives you insomnia. Does your medicine give you anything, side effects that you have to deal with? Well, like I was saying, when I started out with the Concerta, very much like my my heart was quite elevated. So my resting heart rate would be like maybe 53 at rest. And if I'm up at about maybe in the 60s, which is great because I I exercise a lot. I walk and I cycle. You know, it's good. But when I was taking the Concerta, sitting down, it would be at 100, which is very, very high. So that was intense. And like my hands get quite cold, Mm -hmm. like circulation thing and clammy and I sweat more and it's and like the my appetite would be very much kind of killed off as well so eating in the middle of the day was very challenging so I didn't enjoy that at all so then like the Ritalin does seem to suit me quite a bit better but it was that trial and error of having to go through those horrible horrible symptoms to find something where like you said it's like a switch where it's just okay let's just blow all this this fog away and now on you go and I can I can eat my food. I'm not my heart isn't racing constantly. I can think clearly it's very pleasant. But I have had this conversation with so many of my friends is that people who don't take medication, if they demonize it, particularly don't realize the there's people like you and I that have to take mm. these medicines and substances just to get on their baseline mm. of yeah. wellness. Yeah. of wellness and they they don't appreciate that that it, it's a struggle just to function sometimes that we're not taking this just because we we want to have the label of you know oh i have asd or i have adhd we don't we don't want our labels we just want to be able to function and get through life and enjoy it and it's it's very frustrating to to talk to people like that who have never had a thing wrong with the bidet in their life and feel so judgmental it's it's very challenging absolutely and, and I feel sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, there are yeah, like you're saying, there are those who look at us and think, "How can you have it? You you seem perfectly normal." And that's the imposter syndrome. They don't see that other yes. side. No, no. I had I had that yesterday. Actually, I was talking to an older lady, and I said, "Well, I have uh, ADHD and ASD," and she said, "Well, you don't seem like someone who has autism." And I was like. Well, what, what's your experience of autism? Is it a young boy screaming and throwing things? Because that's not the universal experience. Like I have my moments. I don't like there's times where I really do not like being touched. I've had to like rigorously train myself and mask constantly to be able to look mm. people in the eyes when I have a conversation. And sometimes <laughs> I've, like, I've never drank a drop of, drop of alcohol in my life, never taken an illicit, illicit substance. But if I'm outside, I was having a nice time. People are asking me what drugs I'm taking. Because they just assume, they just assume. And I'm just enjoying my life. But they're like, oh, you're nuts. You must be taking X, Y, Z, whatever. But it's, people don't want to see autism in what, in, in a different package. They expect something and the outside looks like yes. a different thing yes, than what they're true. expecting. And they're like, well, that can't be the case. <laughs> it's I mean, nonsense. It's, it's like when you face those people say, who um, who always come up, oh, you don't look like you have autism. I mean, it's the ableism in a lot of people. It's like mm-hmm. they don't think what's coming out yeah. of their mouth. No. I mean, one of, one of our benefits, I guess you can say it's a benefit and it's also a negative is we have no filter. So we say <laughs> Very much our, so. We say what's on our mind to the point to we don't care. Yeah. And people absolutely. Think, oh, you don't care about what you're saying to me. Wrong. It's, I can't stop myself. Very much so. And there's a story yeah. behind that with me 
I used to volunteer at our planetarium. We had a um, every Thursday night of the month, the third Thursday of the month, we'd have a huge adult party, and it would be themed. Well, one one time I was working, and we had this elderly couple, retired couple. The woman was a school teacher, and the husband, he was an engineer. And I come, I came upstairs, and I see them standing by the wall. And the first thought that comes into my head is, oh, look, have you heard there's a new there's a new dance for the old people? It's called Standing Still. And she just looked at me and she goes, I'll get you later. Now, I told that to my supervisor who happens to also be on the spectrum and told her kids. And she's like, it's a good thing she's a teacher, Reed. She, she knows you're joking. And that's why she came back yeah. with that retort. Yeah, I mean, as replies go, that was fairly decent. Yeah, I, there have been times where I stay awake at night thinking about something I said maybe five years but mm-hmm. earlier. You know, it's it's not that I don't care what people think. I do care because yeah. I don't want to be mistreated or bullied. But at the same time, like you said, I, I don't necessarily always have a filter and I'm honest to a fault, uh, which is great because most people around me know that I, I never lie to them, but at the same time, sometimes I say things that can sound very harsh and, and cruel. And I really don't mean that. And I don't like hurting people. Of course not. And it's, yeah, it's, it is very challenging sometimes to find that effective means of communicating with people and trying to hold yourself back nearly sometimes, especially I suppose now that you know, academia in particular, classics is very much networking and and talking to people, making allies, making friends, making contacts, and always trying to make like this this good impression. Oh, it's it's exhausting, and I, I feel quite anxious beforehand when I have to go to an event or uh, seminars or anything. Yeah, I know that feeling all too well. When I was traveling, every time I had to get to the airport, I just felt so much anxiety, like. Why am I doing this? And then the minute I get on the plane, it just like melts away. Yeah. Yeah. It's for for me, it almost seems sometimes that I, I overact and I come across I can come across like it's very funny or I suppose goofy or buffoonish. And I try to I try to nip that in the bud, but it, mm. it's been a learning curve as well. But you're right. Sometimes you worry about it so much before you go into it and you're like, I'm not going to have a good time. You tell yourself you're mm-hmm. not going to have a good time. And then for me, I start talking to people and they I get I have great conversations and I don't know what it is, but I suppose I'm maybe it's maturing or pers- perspective back. I've just have become so unashamed of who I am that I, I will tell people to be like, oh yeah, I have this, I have that. And I say, oh, I talk a lot, but sure. What are you going to do about it? And some people actually ended up kind of finding it charming or interesting. And I've ended up making some good impressions. And I think mm-hmm. deciding to to not mask or to hide has made me less likely to say like the wrong thing. It, it's definitely been interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you deal with racing thoughts? Yes. <laughs> Very much. Very How much so. I mean, that drives me nuts to the point where mm-hmm. I can't even meditate without all of a sudden realizing, oh shit, you're going, I'm, this, I'm not thinking about the meditation. I'm thinking about something else and I got to push myself. Yeah. Down. Yeah. That, that is a challenge, I suppose. Uh, it's, it's just like my head is, is filled with noise and nonsense. Um, that's, for when I'm researching and um, writing and things like that, if sometimes if I'm on my own at home, I'll read out loud to myself so that I can hear mm-hmm. it and get the information to go in. But sometimes I've noticed that I'll be reading out loud, but my, I'll be thinking of something else. I don't know if I've said the right words or not, you know, but I catch it then. And I'm like, OK, you need to just like get up, move around, go get a drink, do something like that. So I, I try to change where I'm stood or where I'm sat, uh, which is something I can do now in my PhD work again, because it's it's very much like solitary. I just go into the library, I sit down, I, I'm my own boss nearly. But when I was in undergraduate or classes yeah. or in, in my master's for the classes and exams and stuff, that is just, that is not, that is not an option. 
And sometimes I just have to accept, okay, well, the rest of this class is an absolute loss. Hopefully they say something that sounds outrageous or interesting that drags me back in. But there there have been times in the past where I've just had to accept, no, I'm not going to be able to concentrate on this whatsoever. That's very frustrating because I you always go into it with the best intentions. Doesn't always work out that way. Yeah. Tell me about it. I literally for my undergrad or not my undergrad, for my master's, I literally forced myself to sit up front. And still, I figured, oh, if I sit up front, I'll be able to focus. He's right in my face. Uh, he, I'm able to look at the board. No distractions. Wrong. <laughs> I wound up walking away, not with a master's, but with a postgrad, because they said my dissertation wasn't good enough. Oh, dear. Yeah. But I still I mean, I'm... a master's. It's still a master's minus oh, a yeah. credit. Oh yeah. Yeah, I've done that 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 old trick as well. I do tend to sort of sit up towards the top of classes as well. So I won't be looking at what everyone else is doing. Um but I suppose just so I can hear um what they're saying as well. Cause sometimes I, I might hear the words perfectly fine, but they get a bit scrambled and I don't know. If I just like concentrate on what they're saying really hard <laughs> I tell myself I might be able to figure out what they're saying. But uh for my masters I had the the great idea to do my master's in the year 2020 <laughs> for that that horrible global unnamed event happened and I had to do the entire thing at home. Oh, God. <laughs> so you, so you yeah. had to deal with every little distraction that could happen to somebody. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, my God. And you couldn't mm-hmm. leave. You're stuck in your house. Yeah, you pretty much. Back. You had to pay attention when you did online classes. Yes, absolutely. Oh, I just had to to sit around at home looking at a, a Zoom screen uh, to do classes at, and I was supposed to have done readings, and I did. I did do the readings, which was great. Uh, so I got the, I got on so much better at my masters than I did at my undergrad. But that was definitely a unique, I suppose, hopefully once in a lifetime challenge, mm. um, having to attend college from home because I couldn't get library books or anything um, because traveling between counties was was pretty much like was called to a halt and I live in a different county than Dublin so that's where the college is so I had I got a special letter from the government and from the college to say that I had the right to travel between counties (laughs) and I would would get someone to drive me up and I'd bring a suitcase and I'd have already ordered all of these books and I'd pick them up put them in my suitcase and travel home again (laughs) it was it it was unique definitely but yeah I think the pandemic really hurt a lot of people Mm-hmm. All the school, all those kids grad- that were supposed to graduate, never got oh, the yes. proper graduation, never no. got the proper education. Mm-mm. I mean, I was, we have a, a member of our family on my sister and my sister-in-law side who's a teacher. And we were talking about this over Thanksgiving. And she's like, the kids, because of the parents, the kids really not, did not get a good education because the parents weren't parenting the kids. Okay. Yeah. She's like, yeah. the kids wouldn't listen. They would keep their cameras off. The parents weren't behind them saying, listen, you got to pay attention. Yeah, that's true. And at the same time, though, as well, like the parents would have to try and work from home, too. Yeah. So they couldn't do that job of the school teacher monitoring or parenting either. Yeah, I, I know that my brother... They, he had to become uh, an impromptu like biology and history teacher like for his daughter and it, it was insane the amount of work that was placed at the feet of parents of, of kids in schools um absolutely but there there was definitely a lot of unique challenges and it wasn't the full college experience to be sure no. but as well as that i think it really showed you know in the past when they say, oh, it's not possible to accommodate fully for people who can't travel into college, like if you're disabled, that that was a lie. They just didn't do it because they didn't want to. Like Zoom classes and hybrid hybrid events are still very much a thing now. So it shows they could they could have done it all along. So for me, yes, I I had those those distractions, but with fibromyalgia comes a certain level of exhaustion and traveling up to college and sitting in person. And it's quite exhausting. So I got to save a lot of that energy. 
by just having to make it to my computer and attend class that way. So in that way, I feel I have more energy and time to dedicate to my studies for sure. But at the same time, of course, I didn't have the same resources. I couldn't meet meet my colleagues in person. It, it was quite isolating and solitary. But it, it definitely, I think, shows that there's more we can do for the needs of, of people with disabilities in an academic setting, in work settings, that working from home is a thing that can be done. And it's it's been a thing we could have done quite for quite a while now, but until it affected everybody, nobody cared. And that that is so frustrating. And it's so, so frustrating to be singled out in that way. Yeah. I mean, pet, I mean um, school should have reimbursed the kids for two, not tuition, but for accommodations. I mean, oh, what, they spent what over a year home. That, that that all that money they spent on their dorm rooms or their flats went went with like burning money. It's money lost. Okay. The yeah. schools could have been smarter and said, "Hey, we understand what's going on. We're going to refund you this amount of money for for the year that you that would have been spent for your dorm room." Mm, yeah. And I again I I think for me, like I wouldn't have been living in Dublin anyways because I am lucky enough that I can commute quite easily, which is which is nice and it's it's cheaper because rent in Ireland, specifically Dublin, is outrageous. It's disgraceful. Shame on them all. Shame on all of the landlords. Half of them are in the government. Shame on them because they're the ones making the laws and charging that amount of money and saying, oh, there's a housing crisis. Well, you know, just live with your parents and wait for them to die and then you can have a house. What? Disgusting. Disgu Very it's a whole disgusting. big issue here, but that's it's neither here nor there. At least, you know, in, in Ireland, the, the colleges did refund some of the fees back to the students. It's something. But that being said, <laughs> there's a, there's always a lot more that colleges and governments can be doing to help um, education and funding of education. Like the the limited means of getting funding and grants in Ireland for, I suppose, PhD specifically. The PhD research is disgraceful. There's not enough. There's not enough opportunity to secure that funding. And in my particular case, I have no choice. I have to live at home with my parents and I'm lucky enough that we have a very solid and good relationship, but I, I do not have the means to move out. I'm on a disability allowance. My father is on his old age pension. My mother has very, very little income. She doesn't work also, but the only like social benefit package that is disregarded when I'm applying for government funding for my research is mine. Not my father's old age pension. That is taken into account and because of that, I don't get funding. That's disgraceful. That is disgraceful and horrendous and very frustrating. I mean, welcome to my world. I'm on disability <laughs> as well. I mean, I have ADHD, mm. I have ADHD, I have OCD, and I am also dyslexic. I live at home. I'm on yeah. disability. My mom's not working. She yeah. works on occasion and whatever. And now... We're dealing with a whole new problem. Social Security somehow hit hit a glitch and said, "Oh, somebody said that you called and said you you were deceased." So now we're dealing yeah. with the fact that we had to go out. We thought we corrected it and over the phone, and no, you have to go to the office. And then we did that, and the guy says it'll be seven to ten days before you get your money, and that I got it. We got to go back and fix everything with me, so I get my money because. My money is divvied out to her. Yeah, it's so we, it's. We're not getting any money. Yeah, it's it's not it's not okay. It's really not. And there's so many of these kinds of mistakes happen, and there are so many people who need these wealth, this welfare, and this funding who don't receive it. And I think I think that's a universal issue. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it it's something that kind of can become a roadblock as well for anything you want to do in your life, because it's already hard enough um, being disabled, you know, to try and like circumnavigate that and get around it, find ways to move on through. But in Ireland, at least, like we get our payment once a week, which is, is great. It's, it's not fantastic, but it, it it's something. But you're restricted then in how, like, if you want to get a job and how much you can work, otherwise you will lose 
you will lose the benefit. And I, it just, it makes no sense. And up until recently as well, uh, there, there was a law recently passed that stopped the government from pulling disability benefit from PhD students who had gotten funding. Because that was something that was happening, that a disabled student had won a grant and got funding for her studies. And the government was like, no more disability benefit for you. <laughs> Absolutely. And then there's these kinds of oversights that you would think are so obvious and easy to overcome and anticipate that is it's not thought about it, it's not considered until it becomes a problem and someone has a voice loud enough to decry it and kind of stand up to stand up for this kind of issue it's nuts now with your asd and adhd do you deal with self-doubt or second guessing yourself a lot yeah i i think it's very much been a big part of life i suppose is that it, it, the imposter syndrome as you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. um because i have had a myriad of health issues, but that whole thing that I would always, I'd always tell myself I was just being lazy or that I just wasn't a nice person when I would accidentally say something in the wrong tone or say the wrong words and hurt someone's feelings. I would just be like, well, there's nothing, I, I, there's nothing like special about you. Like you're just not, not a great person. You would, yeah. I would say to myself and like, you would just, kind of, I would be very harsh on myself for things that I didn't know that I, I couldn't necessarily help or that I hadn't learned to appropriately cope with yet. And I, I would punish myself and say, well, I'm just, I must just be an inherently unlikable person because I had such trouble making friends as a child. Um, but I suppose over time, that kind of self-doubt has has been whittled away quite a bit, thankfully, through a wonderful network of, of very support, supporting friends and a very supportful family. Um, because I, I remember thinking growing up, I was always told, oh, you're a very intelligent child, you're very smart and you'll do great in college, you should go to college and all this. And I did my undergraduate, I didn't get the results I wanted to get, I found it very difficult and I thought maybe I'm not as smart. As I think I am. I'm not as hard a worker as I think I am. I can't do this. There's no point to it. So I didn't think I would ever go back. And it has always been my dream to be Dr. O'Keefe of archaeology, like an archaeologist. And I've said that my dreams were shattered at that point because I I couldn't manage it uh, as like anyone else could because I had these undiagnosed issues. So taking that time out, I, I took like four or five years, I went and I worked, I got some diagnosis for the fibromyalgia. I like sorted a couple of things out and just taking that step back, maturing, reassessing myself, being kind to myself. When I went back to do a master's, I said to myself at the beginning of the year, just do your best. You can't do any better than your best. It doesn't matter. You're not in a race with anybody else. There is no podium. Mm -hmm. There is a finish line, sure, but it's not it's not a time trial. It's you can get there whenever you can manage to get there. You're not and I'm what I didn't make myself compete against my peers. So I was a bit more relaxed about it and just like being honest with myself and being kinder to myself helped with that self-doubt. And in the end, that helped me perform better than I could have imagined. Like after my first assignment, I got first class marks back and I was like, oh my goodness, I am actually very capable. I didn't think I was. This is amazing. And I had learned more than I thought I had and I could apply it better by by being kinder to myself and not always second guessing and doubting. No, I still do sometimes. There's still sometimes things where I'm like, oh, I can't I can't do that or it, it would be very difficult for me. But sometimes it's okay to push yourself beyond your comfort zone because you'll find the comfort zone is bigger mm -hmm. than you ever could have imagined. <laughs> now, do you mask or do you not care anymore what people think? It, I suppose it, it depends uh, because, again, it's, it's something I've been doing for a very, very long time and something I learned to do. And I can't always... I can't always know what's really Amy and what's the mask. I don't always know what's real and what's kind of made up. Um, so <laughs> I suppose there are times where I'm trying to be better about talking in my own normal accent when I'm talking to other Irish people because it, of a class thing. You know, when I first went to college, I was made fun of for my 
you know, Midlands country accent and oh, they th- deemed me. Well, this isn't, <laughs> this This is the accent I use when I'm talking to, to people not from Ireland so I can actually be understood. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's still a little bit of masking, but I sometimes wonder if perhaps it might be better termed as maybe code switching or trying to pass as, you know, or be deemed more acceptable. And I think no matter no matter what, no matter how much I tell myself that I don't have to wear the mask anymore, that I, I don't have to pretend to be a certain way, I'm going I'm going to do it anyways. And I'm going I'm going to have to because we don't live in an ideal world and opportunities that are laid before me, particularly like in academia, if I want to um get into good programs or go to certain conventions and things like this, I need to speak a certain way and give off an aura of you know, what people deem to be intelligent or sounding intelligent or smart. Um, Even though, you know, sometimes you can term something simply and it means the exact same thing as if you had used a thesaurus, but it doesn't matter because there's all of these ideas and biases of what is intelligent, what is an academic. And you have, like, I'm trying to establish myself to be sure and still stay true to who I am. But I also know there are times where I'll have to compromise on that. So with masking, I suppose on my day-to-day life, I don't really. Uh, I have made that. I, I wouldn't know if it's an error or not, but when I'm in the library, it's kind of on a little, you know, like a little square thing. And I sometimes will look off into the distance to think and I, I will make a face that very much looks like a scowl and there'll be someone on the other end, but I, I don't. I don't notice that there's a person there and I will give them a very, very dirty look <laughs> and they will think I, uh, I've i taken against them and I won't notice. Um, so there's still moments like that, but there's other times, of course, where I try to be a bit more refined and seem more academic and intelligent because that's how I'll be able to get in to the system and try to change it from within. <laughs> <laughs> So what has attracted you to archaeology? That is a good question. I think, again, going back to like the TV shows and everything, like Stargate, we also watched Xena, Warrior Princess. Like oh, the his- My favorite. <laughs> I love Xena. Yes. Xena Oh, yes. Both very, very good. Uh, I mean, but I it was own, that. I own the album. I own the entire series, so. Oh yeah, we have both on DVD as well. <laughs> but uh, it was that interest in stories. I think like history is full of stories, mythology is full of stories, and then objects as well, like items and shiny things. Because my dad was was very, he's very much into like Egyptian. I can like the Egyptian imagery and aesthetic of like these golden things, the mystery of like discovering something amazing and fantastic that the, what we would term Egyptomania in, in archaeology. And that kind of like got me interested in it. And I, my parents, God bless them, they didn't have much money when I was growing up, but they would, if I ever wanted a book, there'd be a book. If I wanted to have the book, they would get it for me. So I had endless amounts of Egyptology and like archaeology books and all of these fun things. And I just would read up on it. And I always thought it was so interesting. And then I found it was something you could actually do as a job and that I could go to college for it. And I had the very unique chance that just a few meters down the road from where I live, there was an archaeological site when I was quite young. And my parents would take me down and we would talk to the archaeologists on site and they would tell us about it and I was just my mind was blown it was it felt like some great mystery waiting to be cracked something to like tap into it just felt almost like it was filled with light and golden and something I wanted to embrace so much and I thought to myself that this is something I could do because I do like my stories. I do like talking about things and I love my art and I did art history as well in, in, uh, in college. So the two very much kind of lended to one another, but I think it, it's that interest of narrative, interest in narrative and storytelling. And we have so much of the past behind us and only a small portion of it has been told because they always say history is written by the victors. 
But then you must also remember the victors all have agendas and biases and they'll leave people out or forget about them or don't even know they exist. So we really do need to have as many people as possible looking back on how we represent our history, how we think about the past. So I'm like, yep, that, that's a great job for me. I can do that. I love complaining about how <laughs> grumpy old men write about things relating to the archaeology of women. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what would you say to people who are just now recently getting diagnosed with ASD or ADHD? What would you tell them? I suppose this, my psychiatrist really said it well, um, because in my diagnosis appointment, my mom was with me. It was over Zoom, of course. Of course it was. Uh, but my mom was sitting with me and I suppose she was she was like born back in very much Catholic Ireland and thought, oh, there's not on purpose, but that there's something wrong with you. And she didn't want there to be anything wrong with me and to be excluded from life and have a difficult time. I think that's her care was that I have the best possible life I can have. And she felt I deserved it. But he said to both of us that like, it's not necessarily a label, um, but it doesn't mean like that you, there's things you can't do. Like there are things you can't do, but there are also a lot of things that you can do that other people can't. And just remember that. And I think that is true that we don't all have to be normal or what is perceived to be normal, that mm. there there are things that I can do that other people can't do. And sure, there are things that other people can't do that, that other people can do that I can't. I mean, my brother is far better at maths than I am. I can't stand it. But I, that that's the way it is with everybody. And that it at the end of the day, it it isn't a life-changing diagnosis, not really. It's just information. And if you're getting that diagnosis, it's particularly in adulthood, a part of you has always known. And if you've made it this far, a bit more knowledge would probably just make make it even easier and as another friend of mine says there's no prizes for doing things the hard way so you need you you need to try and make life as easy for yourself as possible so yeah information is power and knowing how to get around these things and understanding why you might react to something a certain way or feel a certain way about something is is good to know because you can adjust accordingly or move around it however you need to. And it's it's just, it's not the end of the world. It really isn't. It might just be the beginning for some people. <laughs> I mean, there were, that kind of reminds me of what I was told when I first went away from school for a learning disability. Mm -hmm. We were sat with, uh, it was a dinner and we were sat with older students who were former and the kid and the student turned to me and he goes, listen, you're going to realize that it's going to it's going to take you longer than it's going to take a normal student to finish their work. Where it takes them one hour, it's going to take you two to three. One mm -hmm. hour to read it, another hour to process it, and then that other hour to understand it. Yeah. I mean, one of the best things I've ever told when I was going for my master's was my one of my disability advisors, and she goes, do the difference between knowing your material and there's a difference between knowing it and understanding it. Mm -hmm. Those who know it are those who just want to memorize the information and just pass the test. Those who know it and understand it can literally recite it and understand what they're reciting. And that happened to me once. I was walking, I was going through my notes for my exam in my head and I literally understood what I was talking about. And I told her this and she's like, see, by going over your notes and going over it and over it and absorbing it, you're understanding what you're talking about. Yeah. And that, that understanding as well is very important and can sometimes be unique because, again, like there are so many different types of people in this world and having ASD or having ADHD can be a unique perspective. And sometimes that means we can see things a little bit differently or we see things other people don't and can make those connections then. Or by having to do that extra bit of work and work that little bit harder, we might see a detail someone else missed. And I think that that is really, really valuable. And most like a lot of the most intelligent and brilliant people I've ever met in my life are on the spectrum, funnily yeah. enough. <laughs> I mean, like Dr. Um, Temple Grandin had said, it, 
those who are on the spectrum care more about what they're focused on than those who aren't. Yeah, that's very, very true. Yeah. Um, and because I know myself that I, I take my research very close to my heart. I live and I breathe it. It becomes my entire life sometimes. And but you, you may not always get that same passion with someone who doesn't have the same condition. Mm-hmm. So there has to be something to it. I mean, it, there, there's a reason. There's a reason we like I, I've done very well with my research so far. You know. <laughs> and finally, where can people find out, learn more about you? Ooh, uh, well, I suppose on the Trinity College Dublin um, Classics page, there's like a little blurb about me, but I suppose watch this space. I do have a Facebook as well. Um, but at the moment, I'm just trying to just trying to establish myself. I don't have a lot of social media. Maybe I should change that. But yeah, uh, just just working away. Trying my best. <laughs> and that's it, ladies and gentlemen. That was Amy O'Keefe, archaeologist. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Not a problem. How I miss the way things used to be. I'm no big fan of now. I must have some sweeter memories Somewhere in the cloud Welcome to the new normal Welcome to the new normal Welcome to the new normal Shout Welcome to the new normal Welcome to the new normal Welcome to the new normal Shout Gonna miss all you used to be Gonna miss all you had Consigned to the dustbins of history Like opinions from your dead Talk to the freaks. You can talk to just about anybody you happen to meet. 